Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of Full Measure After Hours. Today, how the first in the nation's solar mandate is working out so far. Somewhere around about three years ago, I traveled to California to do a story on the nation's first solar mandate. Can't believe it's already been about three years. California, though, was the first state to require all new homes have solar power. And while most people probably like the idea of solar energy, I know I do, it presents a lot of complex issues, as I learned. That's why I decided to take the tact of interviewing not somebody who is for solar and somebody who is against solar, but I interviewed solar advocates who are on opposite sides of whether this particular solar mandate was something that would be effective, clean for the environment, cost-effective, and work all the way around. So to refresh your memory, here is my original report. I called it Solar Opposites, January 27th, 2019. California is the first state to require all new homes have solar power. That could lead the way for other states to follow suit. And who doesn't love the idea of free, clean energy from the sun? But it's not quite that simple. It turns out free can be costly and clean can be dirty. Today's cover story is Solar Opposites. California leads the nation in use of sun-driven power with projects like the historic Los Angeles YMCA. Built in 1928, it has a new system of solar panels and solar hot water, saving money on energy. Solar power has come a long way since the first sun-powered telephone call using a solar battery in Georgia in 1955. Notice that a man's shadow falling across the cells, blocking out the sun, is enough to stop the train. California architect Vetus Moderi shows why California is perfectly situated to soak up the sun. This is Carbon Canyon, and you're looking at another street up here called Coal Canyon Road. Yet despite the Golden State's optimal positioning, climate, and solar innovations, energy prices are still among the highest in the nation. On average, Californians pay 60% more than the rest of us. The new solar panel rule aims to change that. In simple terms, can you tell us what this new regulation about solar panels on houses says and does? If you want to build new houses in California, you must put solar panels on them. Um, and you must put enough to power the house uh, most of the time. Thomas Elias is a syndicated columnist who's covered energy issues in California for 50 years. He says mandatory solar panels will add about $10,000 onto the price of a new home, but save costs in the long run. What would you say are the good points? Well, the first thing is that uh, the average 
buyer of one of a new home in California uh, will make money off of this because uh, while it, that approximately $10,000 would add about 40 bucks a month to the average mortgage, uh, it will also save you about $80 a month in electric bills. So you'll make $40 a month uh, as long as you own the house. Over 30 years, an average homeowner will save an estimated $19,000 in energy costs, eventually more than making up for the added cost of solar panels. I personally think it's a good idea. I come from a city where it's very sunny all year round. It's 100 plus degrees right now. And it would help with the energy consumption. I'm torn because um, it's just going to add the price, add more price to the new homes that are already expensive. But in the long run, it will save them money on energy and make a cleaner environment for California. Obviously, HOA shouldn't prevent you from using solar power, but to mandate it, I think that's going to an extreme. So technically, this is a perfect place for a house with solar panels. Absolutely. Yes. And the orientation of this roof is prime to run them, you know, facing forward all the way down this roof. Monterey's modern home designs on the sunny cliffs overlooking Malibu lend themselves ideally to solar panels. But he says there are big flaws with California's upcoming solar panel rule. What is the problem or the challenge? Picking a panel that will have longevity and that is not a particularly wasteful process that's involved in making the panels. But to be clear, you are a solar power advocate. Yes, I just don't like the quality of the panels that we're getting and the fact that no one bothers to differentiate between crummy panels and not quite so crummy panels. Some call it the dirty little secret of this clean energy source. From start to finish, solar panels leave a trail of hazardous waste. An Associated Press investigation found that over five years, 17 of 41 solar panel manufacturers in California reported how much waste they produced, 46.5 million pounds of sludge and contaminated water. 1.4 million pounds of waste was transported to nine other states. So this is your house? It is. We've been here for about 10 years. And did you try the solar panel thing? We sure did. Adding to the waste issue, Monterey says many of today's solar panels don't last very long. So right over here, right he showed us where he removed solar panels from his own house after less than three years. You mean this spot? Yeah. This That's spot the... right here, yeah. Okay. And this has happened not just here, but in a few other houses that I designed, and the owners installed panels that did not last. Used solar panels are already a global environmental threat, according to the pro-nuclear power group Environmental Progress. It found that solar panels create 300 times more toxic waste per unit of energy than nuclear power plants. Households with solar roofs produce up to 60% more electronic waste than non-solar households. I think they will find that many of these panels that are installed are going to go straight to landfill, and it will be a groundwater issue. There will be an issue disposing of these materials and ultimately reclaiming them. It's like the, everything from cell phones to computers. It's nasty, nasty stuff. A partial solution, he says, could be neighborhood solar farms more easily maintained with less waste. In fact, California's new rule allows new homes to use rooftop panels or a shared solar grid that serves multiple homes. In the end, California's experience matters to people living in other states. Do you think California's solar mandate will likewise somehow resonate across the country and impact other areas too? 
Well, give it a couple of years, and other states that are suited to solar, like Arizona, Southern New Mexico, Florida, a lot maybe. of Texas, a lot of the Gulf Coast and, and, and Florida, yeah, all the way across the Southeast. Um, these kind of places can use the solar mandate and it would work. Do you think in a general sense, there's a trend here that as California goes, so will go the rest of the nation or at least the sunny states? Clearly, that is the way that this is going to go. And uh, it's not necessarily a good thing because I think California is moving prematurely on this technology. The new law applies to California homes built after January 1st, 2020. Right now, it's estimated a bit less than 20% of homes in the Golden State have solar panels. As mentioned, there's been a lot of talk about other states following suit with solar mandates. And I've found that with other issues, like legalization of marijuana, when other states do join in, they often make the same mistakes as the preceding state, because for some reason, they don't seem to be learning about what's happened in the other states that approved whatever it is before them, which is really quite remarkable. And that's what kind of tells me that the efforts state to state on things like marijuana legislation or even solar mandates are sometimes more the result of corporate or special interest lobbying of some kind than of genuine grassroots, because a genuine grassroots effort would certainly inspire legislators to want to know the experiences and the pitfalls in other places that have taken the exact same path before them. If they're not bothering to look and to learn from what's happened in other states, then that implies something else is going on. Well, anyway, I took a look and I haven't seen a bunch of other states jumping on the solar mandate bandwagon, at least yet. They're talking about it or they're talking about continuing to encourage solar, but not in a way, the heavy-handed way, I guess you would say, that California is doing it. For example, there's a recent article in NPR, WFYI, PBS Indianapolis, and it talks about lawmakers are making another attempt to set standards for new wind and solar projects in Indiana, but this time, the article says, the state isn't making anything mandatory for local governments. The article says a little further in that there was a bill proposed last year that, quote, would have made state standards mandatory for all counties to provide consistency for renewable energy companies looking to build in Indiana. The bill caused a lot of controversy for overriding local ordinances, says this article, and ended up being withdrawn by its sponsor, Senator Mark Messmer. So there may be similar hurdles being fought in other states where some people do favor or want solar mandates, but they have to fight some uphill battles. Nonetheless, regardless of whether other states are going to ask the question of what the experience is turning out to be in California, it makes sense for us to at least ask the question, and we're going to do that right after a short break. California's solar mandate is now in full swing, as they say. Sunday, May 1st, on full measure, we're going to ask the question, how's it going? What are they learning? To get answers, I turn to Severin Bornstein, a professor at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business, faculty director of the Energy Institute at Haas. Here's that interview. So in 2019, the state passed a new regulation that required all new houses to have rooftop solar. 
uh, and that I think went into effect in 2020. Uh, but uh, that only applies to new houses. Uh, we are, that we are now seeing a lot of solar go into new houses, but the majority of solar is still going on existing houses. How would you say? What is your assessment of how that law has worked out so far? Well, I think that it probably makes more sense to put solar on new houses, but it's still not cost effective compared to doing large solar farms and wind farms where we can produce renewable energy at far lower cost. As far as you know, have most new houses that have been built complied with this law and yes. put in solar? Almost all houses have. There are a few cases where you can get an exemption, but they are very narrow cases. Originally, there was a suggestion that, or originally there was an idea that you could get an exemption if you build a larger solar farm nearby, community solar, and say that that's the way you are complying. But uh, the state decided that that did not fulfill the mandate after all. So that was a big disappointment. Have there been any impacts that you can tell so far? Is it too soon to say in requiring solar on new homes? Ultimately, I guess the thought is we use less carbon-based energy as a community or as a state. And ultimately, it saves money for the homeowners, supposedly, was part of the sell. Well, it does save money for homeowners, um, but that's because our electric prices are paying for a lot of things other than the electricity. So we have very high electricity prices in California. So when new homes get solar panels, in general, that reduces electric bills by enough to justify it. Unfortunately, most of that savings is coming out of payments from other electricity customers. And those other electricity customers are on average poorer than the people buying those new houses. Can you explain that? How so, that trade-off happens? Well, we what we're doing is we're subsidizing those rooftop solar by giving them a lot of credit for the amount of power they put into the grid. Much more credit than that power is actually worth, for instance, the wholesale price of electricity. Uh, and we have to pay for that somehow. And the way we pay for it is by raising prices on all the other customers. And those other customers are the people who aren't putting in solar, who either don't own a home or can't afford to put in solar. And those people are on average poorer. So those people are doing the subsidizing and the buyers of new houses and some existing houses are getting the subsidy. What is your advice or what are your thoughts as you look at California's plan or hope at least to be more energy independent in terms of less on coal and oil, more on these renewable sources um, what are you thinking about where California is and where they're going? Well, California is making incredible progress on moving to renewable energy, and the grid is very clean in California, cleaner than almost anywhere else. But most of that is not coming from rooftop solar. Most of that is coming from large solar farms and wind farms. And we should be doing more of that, as well as pursuing new technologies. At this point, California is less than 1% of world greenhouse gas emissions. And the only thing that matters for climate change is world emissions. So what California should be doing is focusing on how can we help drive down costs, not just for California, not just for the United States, but particularly for the developing world, where most of the greenhouse gas emissions will be coming from over the next 50 years. Rooftop solar is not really a cost-effective way to do that, and it 
is unlikely to be a cost-effective way to do that in India and Bangladesh and China and other places. So pursuing rooftop solar as a major part of the strategy is not a good idea. Pursuing large-scale solar, that has gotten incredibly cheap. Part of what we have to do now is figure out how to integrate a lot of that into the grid. California is way ahead of almost any other location on doing that. But there's still some challenges, particularly at the end of the day when the sun is setting, particularly in the summer when there's a lot of air conditioning demand. So suddenly you lose a lot of solar production and you got to ramp up something else. Right now, we're doing it mostly by ramping up natural gas generation. We're increasingly using batteries and battery technologies have gotten a lot better uh, and are improving every year. But we're going to have to find a combination of uh, battery technology and other storage, uh, trading with other locations because the sun sets in different parts at different times, uh, and other technologies in order to smooth those ups and downs of renewables. That was Severin Bornstein, a professor at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business and faculty director of the Energy Institute at Haas. What else is coming up this week, Sunday, on Full Measure, May 1st? Scott Thuman joins us with a really interesting story about summer travel, taking a look at what could be ahead now that things are finally opening up as much as they have since the pandemic started. Americans are planning not just domestic travel this summer, but a lot more foreign travel for the first time in a couple of years. Scott takes a look at what it's really going to take for the U.S. visitor and tourism industry to bounce back. Such a crucial industry to so many places in this country. So he'll have that story. And I'm taking a really interesting trip in a driverless car. I took my first ride in a driverless car a couple of years ago. I think it was Philadelphia, Pennsylvania for a story on full measure. And I believe it was an Uber driverless car prototype that had somebody in the front seat just in case. Actually, there was a technician and a computer person working out some kinks. Yeah, it's kind of interesting to be riding in a car without a driver when they're working out the kinks. But the person there in the front seat could take the wheel if he had to. But anyway, one of the interesting things I found out on that trip was that to make all of this work, they literally had to map every street out, bit by bit, mile by mile, foot by foot. Until I knew that, I guess I thought there was some way they could just kind of use Google Maps or some resource that already existed. But no, they had to go make their own mapping of all stationary objects. And it's a very complex process because the system works with the stationary and mapped objects, but they have to interact with moving objects, make reasonable predictions of future unexpected behavior. If there is, for example, a pedestrian on the side of the road that may cross against the crosswalk, there are things like weather and construction and temporary closings to deal with. Super complicated. And it was really interesting how far along they were getting. Well, the technology continues to advance. And for this week's program in full measure, I'm in California taking a ride in a Waymo vehicle where the vehicles are already driverlessly going on the road as part of a test program, at least when I was there, maybe it's even expanded now, with selected customers and employees of Waymo going to work in the driverless cars and driving home in the driverless cars. 
There is still a technician or somebody sitting in the front seat because that's required at this stage of their testing there, but that's not going to be going on for much longer. So when I rode in the car for this test drive, it was a little bit different than when I did the Uber a couple of years ago. They've really worked out a lot of kinks, it seems. Very smooth, very automated, very consumer-friendly. And wouldn't it be awesome if we could get to the point, I imagine we will, where there is an affordable ride you can take with a driverless car that's completely safe and you can sleep in the back seat or do your work. I mean, for me, I think about the hours I spent driving to and from Washington, D.C. when I worked for CBS News. Sometimes that drive because of traffic got to be two or three hours one way. And I tried to be productive when I was driving, in other words, safely using the phone, making and returning work calls with a hands-free headset, but you can only do so much. And wouldn't it be nice to be in the back seat, either taking a nap or getting your work done or doing something else that's productive. But you'll get to come along with me on the ride Sunday on Full Measure. Hope you'll join me. If you want to find out where Full Measure airs on a station near you, just go to CherylAckison.com, click the Full Measure tab, and there is a list of stations and times. If you don't have a station near you, or if it's easier for you to just go online, you can go to fullmeasure.news, fullmeasure.news. And the program airs live, streams there Sundays at 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time. All you have to do is go to fullmeasure.news. There should be a prompt around 9.30. You just click it. Or you can even, if you remember this, go to fullmeasure.news slash live, and it takes you right there. If you miss it live, hey, we make it really easy for you because we post the program and the segments by noon or so on Sundays, Eastern Time. So you can watch it. In fact, you can watch last week's program there right now. And then lastly, you can download our free app, STIR, S-T-I-R-R, not only to watch Full Measure live or on demand, but there's a lot of other cool programming, including local news from stations around the country, but also entertainment and everything there is free. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Share it with your friends, leave a great review, and check out my other podcast, The Cheryl Ackeson Podcast. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.